This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Voluntarily serving as a healthcare provider in a medically underserved country is becoming quite popular. However, what skills do you need? Uh, what type of medical situations are you likely to encounter? And how do you find locations that are relatively safe? These are a few of the questions we'll be covering today as we talk about global health and travel to medically underserved locations. Today we're joined by Dr. Stephen Mary, a family medicine consultant from Mayo Clinic Rochester. Steve's interests include rural and international medicine as well as medical missions. Thanks for joining us today, Steve. Thank you, Daryl. Well, I know you have been on several medically underserved trips mm. um, and an expert in global health. What benefits have you received by doing this? You might want to just sort of change that question by uh, coming at it a bit more like a shark and circle it for a minute and then uh, move in for the kill. Um, I, w when I think about that question, what I first see in my mind is the massive disparity between healthcare in the U.S. and healthcare in low-income countries. And my place or point of reference is Sub-Saharan Africa. It's where I spent part of my life serving. And so when I look at the needs there and I see that, you know, here in the U.S., we've got a a six per thousand infant mortality rate and under five mortality rate that no kidding is 6.5 per thousand. So almost no kids die if they don't die of congenital anomalies and uh, those kinds of severe malformations in the first year of life. There's some other deaths certainly, but, uh, but you look then at Africa uh, where, you know, 30 uh, out of a thousand die in their first few days of life and 60 out of a thousand die in the first year and 110 die by age five out of 1,000, one in nine. Uh, and, and so that, that raises, I think, in any reasonable human, a certain degree of, of, um, of injustice, of inequity, of disparity. And they, they cry out and they say, what can I do to make a difference about that? And, and so uh, that's since I was a little kid, that's what I wanted to do or spend part of my life doing. And, uh, and so when we talk, when I think about what benefit I got, it's that sense of, of seeing that and doing something, even if small, in a little way, uh, to correct that disparity and the joy that comes with sort of seeing things work better and being more fair on earth. Mm -hmm. Well, I've known you for some time, and it's obvious that this is a passion with you. This is something you kind of get that, yeah. yeah, more than just a passing interest. Right. Thank you. Well, I suspect it's very possible that uh, several of our listeners might be interested in doing a global health trip. Mm. Um, if they've never done one before, how does one even start to go about doing this? It's a great question, and I think it's super important to think about before just jumping in. Uh, too many of these trips get done as trips rather than as relationships. And so I would, <clears throat> I would encourage our listeners to think about people they know already doing this kind of work and then join them in that work. So it begins with relationships, and then when they get there, the main point of it is to build relationships. And those might be teaching relationships, so they're going – 
uh, if they're like many of our listeners may be primary care physicians, and they're going to a place where they're going to build primary health care. Well, what's the best way to do that? It's a good way to do it by doing primary health care uh, and, and correcting those common diseases like respiratory illness and diarrheal disease. Um, it's a little better way to strengthen the primary health care system through encouraging some public health means. And it's an even greater way as educators if we can go and teach docs, nurses, community health workers how to do primary health care well and, and build the infrastructure, really build capacity for health in that country rather than just go in and then fly out after a week or two uh, and that's the end of it. But a longitudinal, many years involvement going regularly to the same place, for example, because that's where they've been building relationships. Well, I know you've gone on many of these trips by yourself, but I know you're also a mentor for students, and this sounds like an excellent opportunity for students for a learning experience before they uh, either graduate medical school or complete their residency. And there you've been a huge encouragement uh, as one of the leaders at Mayo Medical School in really getting students involved in global health trips. And I think if we if we start young with uh, these these young people, almost said kids, and get them involved in, um, in really uh, developing that passion for being able to do something because you can do something to get out there and form those relationships, find a place where, where they sort of innately are attracted. I think that's where um, it, when someone talks to me and say, where should I go? I say, well, where do you feel an attract, sort of a connection? For me, it was Africa. For others, it may be Southeast Asia or South America, Central America. So the place is, is going to be kind of the first step. And then who do you know working there uh, that led you to be interested in that? And then starting to build that connection with that physician or nurse, healthcare worker um, that has that kind of work and joining that work and, and going. But yeah, medical students, this is a prime time to go, especially during their third or fourth year when they're in their clinical years and can really make a difference uh, that way. Yeah, this has been an extremely popular uh, opportunity for our students. And I have uh, the opportunity to read their reflections following yes. their trips, and uh, some of them are just incredible. They, they are. Amazing Life-changing. Yes, yeah, it's a It's sort of a phrase we see over and over. Now over uh, um, 400, uh, excuse me, I think we're, yeah, we're over 500 now, International Health Electives by Mayo International Health Program recipients, residents, fellows, and students. And that phrase is a repetitive phrase. This was life-changing. Uh, and so I think if we can change lives by getting more out there mm -hmm. and they come back and they're more and more passion, more motivated to serve the underserved here in the U.S., even if they never go internationally. And that's what the statistics show. Sure. Yeah. Well, now you are a family physician. You you have a lot of knowledge about a lot of things. So let's say a provider or a little bit of knowledge. Well, about I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> you. <laughs> Let's say you have a specialist or a subspecialist, a mm -hmm. cardiologist. Who, uh, there are probably not a lot of electrophysiology studies mm -hmm. that need to be done on global health trips, but mm -hmm. is there a role for somebody who's uh, not as broadly trained as you are? There is. And the best way for that person to be involved then is with a colleague in another country uh, that you know is doing the same thing. Uh, so I'm thinking just 
pops into my mind, Ken Oliver here, who's radiation oncology. He's developed in the last year this fabulous relationship with a radiation, the radiation oncology training program in Tanzania. And Ken is, is developing this uh, uh, bi-directional sort of exchange of ideas and, and uh, mentoring with that program, educating them. His fellows here are developing a training program. That's the kind of, of, uh, of very impactful relationship that one can nurture uh, with an underserved location. They're, they're under-resourced. What do they need? They need our resources. That doesn't mean money necessarily. It means education. It means uh, uh, you know, some, some ideas, research, uh, innovation or assistance uh, and, and teaching. Uh, all of that is, is terribly important. So how does one go about finding some of these locations? You obviously don't just buy a ticket to Guatemala and bring a stethoscope see and who hope, the, yeah, yeah, right. see who comes up to yeah, you. Yeah. So there are some organizations there that are. can be accessed yes. to determine these sites? Yes, yes. And so, again, to circle around it, you know, it probably will come down to a relationship that the listener has with a friend who's now working in, for example, Kenya. And so they may know somebody there that's doing medical care from medical school or residency or afterwards or from their church and then say, you know, write a letter to that person. Say, how can I be involved? I have about this much time a year and I'd really like to be of assistance. And I think um, uh, without exception, they'll be blown away uh, by the way they can have a terribly, uh, just amazing impact by resourcing that person who's in that under-resourced area. Mm -hmm. I imagine just because of the locations, uh, it may take two, sometimes even three days to get there and another two or three days to get back. Indeed. Do you have a recommended amount of time one should kind of block off for a, a trip like this? You know, at least a week because then you can be there four days. Uh, So you're right. It makes more sense to try and take a longer piece of time, maybe a a leave of absence even from a practice or, you know, two, three, four week vacation uh, to get away and really have a chance to to be with the people, see the culture, experience it. Um, And and longer is, of course, more impactful. So... um, the opportunity to be there for three months gets one through a, a commonly experienced sort of cultural uh, uh, culture shock phenomena uh, that you go deep into culture shock and come back out the other side and start to accept and integrate with the local culture. So that'd be, you know, for someone thinking about a long-term service opportunity, I would say three months is a good minimum to test the waters. But mm-hmm. even if they're able to get there for a week or a few days, uh, but really develop that relationship of resourcing the person there that they're 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 going there to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will be a, terribly impactful. Okay. Are you a PA preparing for your upcoming boards? Are you an NP looking to get an inclusive review to improve your practice? Join us for our comprehensive physician assistant board review course. This course is designed to help with initial and recertification examinations and to provide a relevant review for daily practice. This vital course will be held in the historic Mayo Clinic campus in downtown Rochester, Minnesota from July 30th through August 2nd. Hurry as early bird pricing ends April 30th. For complete course information and to register, visit ce.mayo.edu. 
Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Now, we can't, as healthcare providers, we can't just go to another state and provide healthcare because we're not licensed in that mm. state. Is there an issue with our licensure practicing in a foreign country? It's respectful as well as uh, uh, legal uh, to approach the Ministry of Health for anyone who's going to be doing clinical practice and tell them what you'll be doing and see if, if, uh, if you need to register there as a provider. Some countries, that's not necessary. There's, there's sim- simply a, um, an accepted, if you have a U.S. license and you're going to be doing what you do in the U.S., welcome, come on in. But increasingly, um, that's, uh, and I would just suggest making that the habit so that whoever they're going to be working with goes to the uh, Ministry of Health and says, here's who's coming, here's their license, files it in case um, other paperwork needs to be uh, filed or mm-hmm. a license paid for. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So how does one go about preparing for a trip? Uh, what do you pack? What do you bring with? Yeah. So probably the, the biggest thing they can pack or bring with is humility. So, you know, this, this idea that I'm kind of riding in on the white horse to save these people from, uh, you know, their, 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 their woes uh, is, is probably the most offensive, not only to the people, but also the most harmful in, in terms of doing good. So humility and teachability and, and adaptability, uh, but in terms of physical stuff, uh, really getting some good training before one goes, and there's lots of sources for that that are short but impactful. One is the Global Health uh, Institute of USAID, or Global Health uh, uh, Readings of USAID. They're free. Medical students have been using those for some years now. <clears throat> Another one that we use for the residents and fellows and now the medical students uh, for uh, Mayo International Health Program is Unite for Sight. And that's a Yale uh, University program uh, or NGO based at Yale. Uh, that has free readings. You can do a certificate in global health practice free of charge, uh, unless you want to pay the $70 to have the certificate on your wall. But, um, but the readings are about five hours long. They, they cover the basics of what really is a master's in public health and orient one to global health work. And I would strongly recommend doing that. And then buying some good things to take along. Internet may not be available where they go. Uh, the Oxford Handbook of Tropical Medicine is about 80 bucks. It's this nice little small thing that fits in pockets um, and, uh, and covers a vast range of what really is family medicine, but includes tropical disease care as well. That would be a, a top one. Another one is uh, Wolf and, and Palmer, uh, the uh, uh, Handbook of Care in Developing Countries, and that just came out in, in its fifth edition. That's published by Christian Medical Dental Association, Authors Are Friends. Just a fabulous handbook written, uh, some of the chapters written by colleagues here at Mayo. Mm-hmm. So. When you go on these trips, are you the only healthcare provider in the area, or do you work with a group, or is it better to go with a team? Yeah, I would suggest that essentially never should any of our listeners go as the only healthcare provider in the area, because then you're really doing an end run around the Ministry of Health, which is there for the health of the people. So going to strengthen what the Ministry of Health is doing or what an NGO is doing already in health in the country uh, again, developing a relationship with healthcare providers there and using uh, your skills to really um, build capacity rather than uh, be an alternative. Mm-hmm. 
What kind of medical things have you seen that you don't see here in Rochester? Yeah, so the list of diseases, you know, that we get about a week's exposure to in medical school, at least when I was in medical school in the 80s, probably now uh, folks are wiser and provide more orientation to these, you know, uh, tropical diseases. But uh, you know, all of the parasitic diseases are mostly things we only hear about. And so, you know, we've seen worms in pictures, mm -hmm. but to actually see worms up close and personal coming out of someone's mouth, sorry, listeners, uh, or other body orifices, uh, to see them in the blood, parasites in the blood, you know, when you're just doing a routine blood smear and then you see this thing wiggling uh, is, is rather um, shocking at first. And, of course, uh, parasites are in every uh, organ every uh, and everywhere you look uh, in in these countries, and so uh, and the numbers of different ones are are mind-boggling. So parasitic diseases certainly are, and certainly malaria is still a huge killer in Africa. Five hundred thousand uh, children uh, a year die in Africa of malaria. That's down from a million a few years ago. The Global Fund, uh, Gates Foundation, and others funding that. Um, has has made a huge difference. But yeah, so malaria, you know, is a huge killer. Diarrheal disease, we see it here, but we don't see kids die of it. And of course, the number one killer in Africa is still respiratory illness. So it's uncared for, neglected, pneumonia. So all things there come in uh, at much later states of uh, presentation. And pneumonia doesn't come in as pneumonia in the first two days. It comes in as empyema the pus collection in the pleural cavity, you know, two weeks into the infection in respiratory distress uh, with agonal respirations. And that, that, that stage of presentation of illness, of advanced disease, routinely patient after patient after patient, very quickly helps one realize that, you know, this is not Rochester. We've, we're, we're in a place where there is no access to medical care for vast land stretches, and people therefore take their risk that maybe this will go away, and after weeks of it not going away and getting worse, then it's time to pay those last dollars out of the household savings to try to save the life. And are there resources available once you diagnose these conditions for patients to get treatment? There are, and in places, again, where I would recommend our listeners only consider going, which are established hospitals and clinics. So those places are places that are buying through the uh, national pharmacy or uh, on the international market, medications have stock and are maintaining adequate uh, inventory to treat the diseases that need treatment. Mm -hmm. I'm sure this varies depending on where you're going, but what kind of living conditions can one expect? It depends on the country, but in a low-income country, one should expect you know a concrete floor and, and uh, louvered windows and a, maybe a foam mattress on the mm -hmm. bed. Um, but... Um, Usually, if you're there doing clinical work, you collapse into bed so tired you don't really remember what the living conditions were like uh, much. Um, if you're there on an educational trip, um, you're busy, you know, till late at night uh, talking with others and, and trying to really uh, have that dialogue that furthers relationship building. And, um, and that's my segue to remind me to say, hey, um, again, the most effective way we can intervene, especially on short-term trips, as uh, consultants, not learners, but as those who've already been degreed and are working, is by educating uh, national staff. Mm -hmm. and, and that really builds capacity. Then you're leaving behind someone who's equipped to do something better the next time 
uh, rather than you know taking that sand dollar and tossing it in the ocean and it may drift up on shore again. Yeah. Roughly, how much can one expect to spend on a uh, global health trip? So you know, if you're going to Africa, you're you're dropping a thousand and a half on a discount ticket uh, to get there and back. And uh, but once you're there, the cost of transportation and living is negligible. So you know, twenty five hundred to four thousand, and you're spending two weeks uh, mm-hmm. really doing good. Okay. Well, let's finish up talking about safety issues. I know we spend a lot of time with our students. We can't guarantee their safety, but we do everything possible to minimize the risk that they're going to be uh, exposed to. What are some safety issues that providers need to consider before going on a global health trip? Well, first is see a travel clinic. So they need their shots, and you need your malaria prophylaxis if you're going to an endemic area. Um, and, And then as providers, if doing clinical care, again, big plug for teaching, but if doing clinical care, Post-exposure prophylaxis needs to be purchased because, you, or you need to make sure the hospital or clinic you're working at has that available in case there's a needle stick or other injury. Uh, but, but then uh, you know, some of the common stuff you'll see on the CDC website, you know, about you know, don't you know, boil it, peel it, cook it, or don't eat it, or you know, don't get in a, a cab with some guy that's swerving down the road prior to picking you up. You know, drunk drivers, uh, cabbies are 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 a, a dime a dozen. Um, in, in low-income countries. So be, be careful, be choosy. Don't jump on the back of a motorcycle to do the boda uh, boda kind of uh, transportation through town, swerving uh, around cars without mm-hmm. a helmet on, common sense kind of things. But when you're there, you, one can develop a sort of, well, I want to be like the locals, I'll jump on the back of a motorcycle. And that kind of thing is, is uh, um, entirely foolish, um, though sometimes necessary. Uh, but that, that kind of safety sense and thinking it a bit, thinking it through before going. Again, this uh, Unite for Sight uh, um, site of doing the global health certificate, they have that kind of common sense uh, orientation in there, so that the average person getting ready to do a trip can say, "Hmm, hadn't thought of that. Yeah, better, better uh, mm-hmm. choose wisely there." And I know some of the countries that one may go to um, often have somewhat unstable governments, and things can happen quickly. They can. So, you know, at one point, the uh, area may be safe. Right. And within a couple of weeks, things may be completely different. Well, right. And, you know, that's our history, one of the family stories. So we arrived uh, long-term to develop a family medicine residency in Cote d'Ivoire in 2002. And in five and a half weeks later, French commandos had us on their, their uh, helicopters whisking us out of there because civil war had broken out in the area where we were. and. Mm-hmm. And we went through an all-night firefight with mortars and bullets flying and all of that around the, uh, our house at the uh, hospital we were working at. So it, it does happen. And every, every medical missionary, global health volunteer who's worked long enough in low-income countries has those kinds of stories. Um, but uh, registering with the embassy. So if, you know, before you go, you reg- register with the U.S. Embassy on the smart home site um, for the State Department. That makes sure that they know you're there. Then they're going to come looking for you when they know trouble has broken out, as, uh, as the uh, folks did for us when, um, uh, when, when war started in mm-hmm. Cote d'Ivoire. And I know one excellent uh, resource for the, anybody who's considering this is the U.S. State Department. Uh, it is list uh, that's available on the internet and it it gives 
basically all locations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as very high or high or little lower risk. The the disappointing, but the reality is, uh, but disappointing thing is that of course most low income countries are in the high risk zone because by their nature, um, that is why they're low income and why they're underserved is because they've had unstable governments that haven't promoted the good of the people. And that's certainly true for much of sub-Saharan Africa, which otherwise would be fabulously wealthy with all the mineral riches, but Mm -hmm. uh, really has had trouble pulling it together in terms of stable governments. We've been talking about global health and international medicine with Dr. Stephen Mary, a Mayo Clinic family medicine consultant. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.